You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm very pleased and excited to be joined on this week's episode by the wonderful Gareth Reynolds, who many of you will know from the Dollop podcast, in which a uh, comedian and uh, irascible host and a uh, uh, friend of this podcast, the wonderful Mr Dave Anthony, who, as uh, Gareth will go on to describe, uh, is a wild ride on Twitter. So do get following Dave. Um, but what happens in the Dollop podcast, if you're unaware of it, is that Dave tells a true story from history and Gareth improvises uh, live to it. And that does not do it justice at all. And nor does it do the comedy career of Gareth Reynolds any justice because he is a wonderful, wonderful comic. He has an incredibly fertile imagination, a brilliant gift for improvisation and kind of imp- characterful. What am I trying to say? Um, improv characterization. It's an absolute joy. As I will explain to him later, you can actually hear what kind of hat his characters are wearing. So you can look forward to that. But the reason I am getting this uh, podcast whizzing out to you, having just recorded it yesterday, and uh, dear producer Nathan is going to uh, slam it out as soon as he possibly can, um, is that Gareth is on tour. And he's on tour kind of pretty much right now as you hear this. I think his tour begins on, and this is the information that I should have in front of me. It begins on the 13th of September. Now I'm recording this on the 5th. So hop to it. He's going to be in dates all over the UK. He's going to be in Cardiff. I know he's going to be in Bristol. He's going to be in Glasgow. Uh, He's going to be in Manchester. And you can find out all about the other places. He's going to be at garethreynolds.com slash events. So find out about that because you don't want to miss him. He is... um, This is one of those situations where Gareth doesn't have an enormous touring profile over here. But he's... He will convert. He's a comic that converts. So go along and see him. Check him out. I'm so excited about him and his comic ability and his tour show. I really want you personally to go and see it. Not just because I say so, but because you love good comedy. Good. I think I've made my position clear on the Gareth Reynolds matter. Um, So now let's get into this podcast with him. This is Gareth Reynolds. In order to get Zoom to video, I have to have my own face visible on the screen. So forgive me while I just get a piece of paper and uh, make that no longer the case. Fucking janky <laughs> you ass. You can't look at yourself. Pos- no, do you do you have your face visible on the screen right now? Uh, yeah. That's narcissistic and insane. That's the sort of... I would expect that from Dave Anthony, but not from you. <laughs> it's funny. It is like you do just look at yourself a lot. It's real weird. It's very. Strategic. I like that you do that. That's very. I like that. 
<laughs> but can you imagine if I was even more calculated than that and I didn't? I only looked at myself and yeah. I just said I was doing that. <laughs> oh, that would be... That that's, would, like some just... that, that, that's like some, like... I'd be like, oh, so he has like a sink full of brains or something. Like, <laughs> a lovely hair outfit. Um, good. Yeah, Edinburgh was nuts. Edinburgh was... Um, uh, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a new sort of thing, which is... Um, I'm I'm doing stand up about the climate crisis in a oh, in a sort shit. of earnest heart on my sleeve. I'm going to try and make the climate crisis funny. So I did a show about eco dread, and that's even that is sort of the a sort of short tail into like I think I'm I think I might have found the thing I want to talk about. Do you know what I mean? That's it sort of feels great. talking oh, yeah. about other stuff feels a bit pointless. <laughs> With all due respect to purveyors of excellent comedy such as yourself, like no, I, I you know that that's so. It's so interesting because uh, I've dabbled in some of that and found it to be alienating for some reason. But that is fucking that's alienating, alienating to to the audience or to you, to the audience. Yeah. Oh, it hundred percent is. It's taken me eighteen months of dying on my ass to learn how to make them. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically our whole. That's how we're handling it. We're like, yeah, we're not going to handle it. We're not even going to acknowledge it. So I, that's so amazing. I honestly thought we can, we'll, we'll have started already. I'll tell you things in a minute, but this is an interesting yeah, yeah. point to start. Um, so I'll try and say this in a way that I've not already mentioned on the podcast before. But um, I had anticipated that I would effectively be saying to audiences, hey, you know, you're terrified of the climate crisis. And they'd go, yeah. And I'd go, well, here are some thoughts I've had about how to feel better about it such that that might motivate you to, to do better about it. But I found like 18 months ago, I was going, you know, you're terrified of the climate crisis and audiences were going, no, no, we never think about it. We never care. Is it real? <laughs> not, not like in a sort of terrifying redneck kind of it's not real. They just didn't have an opinion. They just didn't want to think about no, it. I, cognitive you know, dissonance. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. So. So anyway, I had I had a really great time and it, I, particularly it was really satisfying to have it was so hard won. Do you know what I mean? It was like I really yeah. I floated through the festival because I was like, oh, I died hard over and over again trying to make this funny. Yeah. So now it's really robust. So I had a good time. That's great, man. That's that's so I it's so. Well, first of all, I mean, like, you know, Dave and I, um, y- you know, have I mean, we are very that's basically all we talk about um, it, when we're not doing our show, like in our friendship. Our friendship is basically a bond over climate or 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 you know political dread or whatever like it's 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 a very dark friendship in that way um so to be able to make that funny is fucking amazing um and i have a i have a thing um a story well basically i had a, i had a stalker for about a year i i mean intensely for about a year not can a we phys- can we talk phys- about this are you happy this yeah, being yeah. on the episode yeah yeah well it, just in a a broad sense it's a very dark it was a very dark time like very dark time for me it led me to um you know i mean i was kind of going nuts over it because she is a um she is like a she basically all she wants to do is fill you with panic. And it's all basically, she does it to, you know, people with profiles who, uh, you know, she like 
people who are trying to make it in the business essentially is her target. And she just stresses you out over your social media, takes over your phone with harassing texts and calls and starts to harass people in your in your orbit. And it, it was just it was a very and I was like, I'd never my career had never been going better. And then this thing was just kind of anchoring and and pulling it away from me. And I, so I, I kind of had this story and then I finally did a podcast with my friend. Um, I went on his show and I kind of just told the whole story. Yeah. And then after it, and I kind of thought about this in the back of my head, but then after it, I was sort of like, I want to do it as a show. And, and I don't think as a stand up show, and I don't think that I could crack it here. I don't think yeah. that in the States I could go to clubs and go because it's a it's a it is an hour. I mean, like to, to what you're saying about climate, like that is an there is you're not ever going to go. Well, it's another joke or what's another angle? Like it's just endless. You could talk about yeah. it. I could talk about it endlessly. Um, but I'm like, I, I it'll take me a minute to make it funny. I mean, there's some funny shit, but it's so dark and okay. so. It, it just is. So I'm like, I, what I want to do is I want to go do it in like Melbourne for like a run because okay. I know that it's more of that. And so that's yeah. why Fringe is such a great place to sort of unfurl the thing you're working on because it is it is just not funny, but you can yeah. make anything funny. You know? Well, that's that's one of the great things about Edinburgh. And I do, I'm sure people use Melbourne in a, in a similar way. The danger with those festivals, both of them, is, as you know, is that they become the, the Olympics. They become like, yeah. this is the showcase, you know, where it's so yeah. you've got to be really strict about saying this is a work in progress and I'm going to fuck about. And it's so interesting over the last few years to have seen people. The one I remember in particular was Mae Martin, who mm-hmm. did an incredible kind of like, I think that I think they said, um, Come when you come in, write a question, put it on a piece of paper, put it put it in a hat, and the show is me answering the questions. And through doing that, they worked out what they want, what people wanted to hear them talk about. And and That's if you're so really sort of, it's so you can be so martial about it. I think the the Edinburgh Festival certainly is this kind of sort of sort of pulsating interdimensional mass. But if you impose your will upon it in a smart way, you can kind of tap a little bit of the you know, the energy of it to do precisely that and to work out something like that. Well, because I think that, you know, it, it is, I mean, there's, there's certain, like, you know, in the States, it's, it's different how the stand up is the work of stand up in different countries. But in the States, mo- traditionally, if you're a headlining comedian, you'll go to a club for a weekend, you'll do five or six shows and, you know, I mean, that process is you're so sharp by the end, like material that sucked on the Wednesday show is fucking great by the end of Saturday you know, or not yeah. great. But it's like you're like, I could I have something to work on yeah. now. Um, but uh, but those the festivals to me, I've never done like a run at a festival. And uh, it is so appealing to me for for those reasons. It's just sort of like, you know, you could kind of, it's almost like you workshop that and then i feel like okay well then i would have an hour about this nightmare situation i could take yeah i could take it to clubs you know 100 percent. so are you you're coming to the uk yes i'm coming to the uk yeah i my tour starts september 13 in glasgow and uh and i'm not sure if it ends i might not do my cardiff show i'm not sure because okay. uh, nobody's coming to it. Okay. Um, but basically, yeah, I'm there from the 13th to the I hope 24th this, doing I hope shows. this podcast, sorry to interrupt, I hope this podcast a lot. 
can get you enough people that it is still a ball ache to do, but you're committed to it. <laughs> there is a lot of pressure on this show to for the people of Cardiff if they give hey, listen, a shit, which I don't the, think they do. The goldsmith promises I can get just enough people out that you feel bad about letting them down. <laughs> well, you know, I just want there to be more than me. If I outnumber the audience, that's a problem. <laughs> I interrupted um, you over the dates of the show. Please tell me again the dates of the. Uh, so, so I'll be, I'll be in, I'll be all over. I'll be in uh, Br- Bristol, Manchester, Dublin, Glasgow, uh, Birmingham. You've got to say London. you're doing so well, but you've got to say Glasgow. Glasgow. You've got to say Glasgow. You are the master of accents. I know you can do many different. Glas- uh, Glasgow. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's, that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's it. I think. Uh, I think that's it. But you could go to GarethReynolds.com for, for tour information for all that bullshit. But Amazing. But yes, so I am coming there to do a run. And I've never and, done that before. And is, is the run, is that with a view to the stalker, the stalker stuff? Are you going to be putting, like, wedging no. new stuff in? What's the format of the show look like? I, you know, it, it sounds uh, very unprofessional, but I have not really, uh, you know... I'm a I'm a I'm a UK citizen, so I have I was raised by the English in the middle of America, and so I just naturally have a lot of stuff that's kind of about England or the Royals or um, you know that sort of shit. So I I have a lot of material around that. I I'm not fully sure. I have I'm at the point right now where I have like two hours of stuff that I'm just kind of toying around with. Yeah, right. Um, so I think it'll be. You know, I'm not really sure what it'll be. A lot of it is anecdotal. Some of it is political. Um, but I'm excited to be like, oh, that doesn't work here. <laughs> like, oh, that's better here, you know, or whatever. Um, yeah. How do you think how do you think talking shit about the royal family goes over in England? 100 percent. Great. You'll be fine. That's what I think, too. The, yeah. You'll be fine to the sort of people that are going to come and see you. You'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, I, I feel like anyone who walks off the street is going to be like, well, I don't like this. No, you know? I would say there are very few places. I would say in the southeast of England, there are some places where yeah. like generic club audience who walks in off the street might take exception, I suppose. I have a joke yeah. that sort of obliquely references the death of Diana, in, and it does it in a passing way in which I think they're offended by well, the Well, she did it in a passing way, too. <laughs> I, th- I think the audience, such that they are kind of offended with a very small O, I think they're yeah. offended that I'm being so offhand about it. But that's more to do with yeah. my relationship with any you know given room. I think, I think you'll be absolutely fine. I think they'll love to. Okay. I was thinking that. So I watched, I watched um, England Weed and the Rest. Oh, and, yeah. Um, it's such a great show. And I'm really, I was oh, so ex- I'm so excited to have you on this because I know you as primarily as a podcaster. And that might, is that the case for your, uh, for your audience generally? Are you anticipating that most people who come out to see you are dollop fans? Yeah, I definitely have been on my mission um, for most of the run of the dollop trying to convert my podcast <laughs> fans into stand-up fans. And, um, <laughs> And, you know, I continue to be on that mission. Uh, That's it. That yeah, sentence mo- most true people... of all podcasting comedians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what I'm really, yeah, what I'm really struggling to do at the moment is convert the podcast fans yeah. into fans of my live stand-up. Yeah, I think that there is, you know, there is that... I, I think, I don't know. I, I'm not sure why it is like that. But yes, definitely my appeal is to podcast fans as a stand-up, for the most part. But what I think really, what I was really excited about watching that show and then some other stuff, and I want to talk to you about Gariffs as well, which is a frankly okay. a heroic achievement, which I would recommend any new stand-up <laughs> watch. We'll get, we'll get to that. I, I think, it, I, honestly, I was so impressed in, oh, in a, like, 
yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But um, uh, in terms of your, so like the you on stage and the sort of stand up that you do, I was thrilled that it contains so much of what we love about you and the dollop, which is that not just your kind of your angle of attack, the kind of like, not exactly the naivety, but you know, you're 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 being the same you. Do you know what I mean? You're um, yeah, like that's yeah. that's one of the millstones around my neck with this podcast. Is oh, I'm going to stroke my beard and ask perceptive questions and shut up, and that isn't what I do on stage. Um, <laughs> but you you're managing to do both. Like you know, an audience who are dollop fans will will feel satisfied by coming to see you do your stand up because what you do on stage is so similar to what you do with the dollop. Whereby I was trying to describe it with some uh, to someone recently. You, the, the characterization that you do, not just the, we talk about the riffing, but the characterization that you do and the kind of, you know, to be reductive, the silly voices that you do. I feel like you are now so skilled at doing that and so experienced at doing that. I can kind of visualize what hat you're wearing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? When you're like being, you know, an old timey <laughs> prospector or like the owner of a gin palace or do you know what I mean? Or like a, 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 a top hatted guy you know, uh, setting fire to a, like lighting a cigar with a $20 bill. I feel like they are so, the characterizations are so rich and you just fling them out there for like, you know, five seconds or five minutes worth of pursuing some comedy idea. And that, and you do that same thing in your standup. Oh, well that's so, that's, uh, I mean, well that is not only a fantastic compliment, but so historically accurate because the history of hats (laughs) is <laughs> one thing I've learned from the dollop is essential and is just it's a real trigger for uh, for history. But uh, but that's so nice. I mean, you know, I think like starting to do the dollop was I was so lucky because it just catered to my strengths in a way that n- nothing else ever would have. Like it was it was. Improv, right? You go out on stage, and which I, you know, pretty much was my my background. You know, you go out on stage and you're finding something with someone else, and you know, you're definitely making decisions on a character's behalf. But there's just it's almost an overwhelming amount of invention. What Dave did on the dollop was he was like, "Here is the character," and for me, it just I don't know why that to me works so easily. But it's like do you, a cheat. Do you mean, it's like do you mean here is the character in terms of like the information he gives you about any specific yes, person like in the a show? Guy, yeah. Yes, like a man who has a cane who's driving a Rolls Royce and giving lobotomies from town. You know what I mean? And in my head, I go, well, now I can make some very specific voice choices or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. so it really is like a cheat. But but then I think that that you know that really did allow me to go. Oh, okay, people like that, and that is what my stand-up essentially has partially turned into, you know, is partially just going, here's what this person sounds like, or this, you know. Yeah, one one of the joys of listening to the dollop, you're talking about the dollop in the past tense. Is is the dollop still going? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, oh, yeah, for, yeah, we just did a crazy two-parter yesterday on oysters. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> I was still going. It's just, I was listening to a, the Albert Einstein one recently on YouTube, and it was only like a month yeah. ago or so, but I, I thought, yeah. I don't know if they're out currently. I'll find out. Okay, I'm oh, glad yeah, to yeah. I just, I just mean when we first started, like, gotcha. it was very unique to me. And also, also the other thing, I remember being sort of incensed, really, when I first discovered the dollop, that you were in this position whereby someone else does all the work and the uh, research. I, <laughs> I try to not mention it because I just am like, 
Dave, Dave obviously doesn't love it because because I'll be like, hey, can we do like three o'clock? And he's like, no, I have like another five. And I'm like, oh, cool. Eight, eight works. Eight works. <laughs> it's so it's so funny as a like to to create one's dream format. What if there's a guy I've mentioned this on the show before, you know, the, the um, Irish comic Tommy Tiernan. He did yeah. a he did a, a, a chat show where the premise of the chat show is that he doesn't know who the guest is going to be. And he won't uh. necessarily know who they are and they walk on. And you're like, you hear that and you're like, chef's kiss for efficiency and elegance. What a system to make, a, to make an angry man research for hours and then deliver you stuff to rip the piss out of. What well, a sensational he, setup. I don't think Dave thought it through fully because, <laughs> I mean, he definitely, he definitely loves that, but it became like his job. And and when we were on the road or stuff, you know, I would be like, hey, do you want to go like see this museum or something? And he'd be like, I can't. And I'd be like, oh, right. Me either. I'm also really busy. Like, get, I got to like get my head ready for the show, too. Oh, it's so funny. It's like he plays the double bass and you play the harmonica. <laughs> it's like none, Not none of- And there's no harmonica in my hands. I'm just going like. Rawr, 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 rawr. <laughs> That's glorious. So this is Gareth. Apologies for that completely barking mad intro. I'm basically, I've run out of time. <laughs> I've run out of time in my administrative day. And I'm also, you know how, um, uh, what did Helen Bauer uh, call me? She says, I'm a little prince, but she also, <laughs> I wish I was the only person she described as a little prince, but it's a whole genre. Um, you can refer back to the, the time I guested on her and uh, Catherine Bohart's Trusty Hogs podcast for more on that. But also... Oh, that's it. She said I was cringe. And I look, it's not stuck in my craw. I don't worry about it. I never think about it. You can tell I never bring it up. Um, but I think it's times like this when I remember what she means is I'm really um, uh, earnest. <laughs> like, I, it's so cool these days if you can not, not really mean what you say. But I pretty much always mean what I say. And I can feel myself being really earnest about Gareth in this in the intro and in this bit. Just because I really want you to see him. And uh, as he mentioned at the beginning there, who knows how many tickets he sold for Cardiff. Um, so let's see if we can make, uh, if we can really make that the ComCom guarantee, as I referred to earlier in this episode, that uh, when a guest who's coming to the UK without an enormous touring profile here, when they come on this show, the ComCom promise is that enough of you show up to their tour show that they feel compelled for the show to go ahead. Uh, I'm Listen... I'm not, I'm not off menu. I can't snap my fingers and, and fill a room for someone. But I do frequently. It, it always makes me pleased when I hear back from comics. And this happens at Edinburgh. It happened in the Edinburgh Just Gone. People will say to me, oh, my God, thanks so much. I had so many people at the show who said they'd come because of ComCom. So do this now for Gareth. Earnest message complete. Now, um, you, you can find out, of course, uh, about Gareth Reynolds at GarethReynolds.com. Where else would you look? Um, but you must also uh, follow him on social media, which the details of which escape me at the moment. But you can certainly uh, listen to the dollop as well. We'll get more into that in the second half of the episode. We're also going to talk. Um, oh, I didn't even mention the extras. We've got like 25 minutes of extras. Really unmissable technical stuff in there about the, the parallels between improv in the kind of theatre sports sense, improv on stage whilst riffing and crowd work and how those three they're all kind of like three points on a triangle we get really into some i mean i i was going to leave it in the main episode but we it got do you remember the paul foot when paul foot told me about his his seven styles of joke and uh, and i put them all in the extras it's it's a bit more that that end of the market so if you are a comic 
who is interested in crowd work riffing or any of those things, or if you are just a glutton for punishment, we really get into the weeds. So remember, you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders uh, for that stuff, as well as ad-free episodes, extra content from every show that has it, and much, much more. Not much, much more, just more. Uh, £2 a month minimum donation. £2 a month minimum donation, or however much you would care to drop on us, me. Um, do not miss Gareth's new podcast as well. We didn't even speak about this in the in the interview. We just talked about it afterwards. He has a, a new podcast with actor, indeed movie actor, Jake Johnson. And it's called We're Here to Help. It's so new, it doesn't seem to have a .com just yet, but you can find it at audioboom.com slash channels slash 5113355 hyphen we hyphen re hyphen here hyphen to hyphen help. I hope they stick with that, frankly. Uh, and you can find the dollop, of course, at dollopodcast.com. More from Gareth just now. I don't have anything to plug right now until I get my act together. I, by the time you hear this, I'll have already done the, this climate comedy festival in Thames Ditton. Um, so, and unless this goes out Friday morning and you're in the Thames Ditton area, then please come along to that. I don't even know if it's public or just for an organisation, but um, I think it's public. Anyway, um, more to come. Big podcast news coming at you in a few weeks. Um, and I should get more into the habit of telling you what I'm up to. So I'm going to be at the Hen and Chicken. Uh, this isn't a tour show. These are just some fun Saturdays I've got coming up. The 30th of September, I'll be at the Bristol Comedy Box at the Hen and Chicken. And the 21st of October, I'll be closing in Lyme Regis, if you're near there. That's always a banger of a gig. Um, and I can't remember the name of the theatre, but if you're in Lyme Regis, you'll know it. And I'll be generally cropping up all over the place. I, I By the next time we do one of these, I'll be slightly more... What's happened here is that post-Edinburgh, did I mention this on the last show, post-Edinburgh, I don't have a lot of live stuff in the diary right now because I'm hunkering down and working on some other exciting projects with which I shall soon bash you over the head. Um, but for now, no post-amble, getting back on with life, rushing this one out in order um, that you go and see Gareth Reynolds. How? By going to garethreynolds.com slash events. And in fact, here's the list while I'm at it. Here's the list of everywhere that he's going to be. I mean... If you've stuck with me this far, good on you. Uh, he's San Jose. Wrong bit. Sorry. He's going to be at Oren Moore in Glasgow on the 13th of uh, the 13th of Wednesday because it's an American website. So he's put it in a weird order. Then he's going to be at 21 Soho in London, the Sugar Club in Dublin, uh, Frog and Bucket in Manchester, the Glee in Birmingham, Comedy Box in Bristol, the Glee in Cardiff. Uh, and then he goes to Australia. So you can see him from uh, in from November the 10th. He's going to be at the Capitol in Melbourne. The the Wretchabite? The Wreckabite? Who knows? In Northbridge. The Rhino Rooms. God, I haven't been to the Rhino Rooms in 10 years. I love the Rhino Rooms in Adelaide. Um, the Anu School of Music. I'm sure they don't call it that. In Canberra. The Brisbane Powerhouse. The Comedy Store in Moore Park. Uh, and then he's got a bunch of American dates. And I'm, I'm, I mean, they're in, they're in Raleigh, which they might call Raleigh. No, they probably call it Raleigh. Who knows? Raleigh. Maybe they call it Raleigh in North Carolina. Bye for now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So for people who are less familiar with the, the dollop, this is a show in which uh, Dave Anthony researches. I mean, it started off, was it moments in history or people from history, stories from American history? And then the, the, the ceaseless demand of 500 episodes has kind of broadened it. Almost 600. I mean, I think it started, well, he started doing the show alone. He basically started the dollop and he just kind of was talking so about he, figures. He has no one to blame but himself. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, so, so he did that. And I think that he, I think, you know, he thought, okay, well, it's, I want someone there. And um, and I think it was just going to basically be rotating comics. And he was going to do politics, American history. It, he definitely wanted to focus on America. And then I did the first one. And, and... Gloriously, to the benefit of the show, this was not a component that was planned. I don't know anything about American history, like except for the dumb shit in school, which I didn't pay attention to. And so the game there became like gamesmanship over Dave preps this story from American history, you know, meticulously, and I go in knowing nothing, and he basically teaches it to me. Yeah. But the first episode was like a topical news story that I knew about. Um, and then after that, it just kind of became he just would just rip these crazy tales my way. And um, and then, yeah. And like I said, I mean, I would just, you know, like riff on them or 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 whatever. But but yeah, so Amer- it's basically American history is the world of the show. And yes, now we're at almost 600 episodes, which is crazy. crazy. And do you does it does it stay? We'll just say stay with the dollop for a moment. Does it? I was thinking the questions I've got are things like, does it? Has it changed the way you see America? Like, do oh, you just l- learning all this stuff? Because Dave is like, I follow Dave on Twitter, and he is among the hardest left quite people that I follow. <laughs> it's quite a ride. <laughs> There's like, he, but anyone that I think is a good guy, left wing person, Dave fucking hates for being too right wing. <laughs> so it's it's a wild ride. So you're getting not only, I mean, he's doing actual, you know, like uh, uh, non partisan research. He's doing historical, factual stuff with a kind of angry Dave spin to it. But you are, it, like, it's, that show, is, your show has already changed the way I see America. So to have been there for all of it, like, I'm thinking, does any of it stick? Is it a sort of a slow cumulative process whereby you end up feeling differently about your, the land of your birth? I think you were born in the States, right? If, yeah, yeah. If, if, even raised by the English, um, like some sort of cuckoo. Um, but uh, no, the op- it's the opposite of a cuckoo, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, uh, uh, a cuckoo. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I just I'm in, I'm interested in how, and also whether any of it's like, have you learnt stuff as a result of it, or do you still like the the naivety of the like I still know nothing because none of it sticks because that's how my head works. I mean, honestly, all of it. Um, yes to all of it. I. It has changed the way I not only view American history, but view America today. Um, I think Dave's, you know, Dave is rooted in this country sucks because 
of capitalism. I think when we started the show, I was already like, this country is not good. Our our politicians fail us. But I don't think I necessarily had the look I do now of like, oh, yeah, it is. There's one party. It is, uh, you know, run for the rich, by the rich, against the poor. I, I... the history you learn in school in America is so boring. And and the stuff that Dave has, even with some of the subjects covered in school, like Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. I knew who Harriet Tubman was. You know, I knew that she was, uh, you know, how, like started the Underground Railroad. And um, I, I, you know, you know those terms, but you don't know that she's like an action hero like that she so it's part of me is going well why don't they teach you the the breadth of this hero and and a lot of it seems like it's just because a lot of american history is to remind you to just kind of stay in line and i don't think i had any clue that that was i i think if you told me that when i started the show i'd be like that's insane and now i firmly believe that i firmly and if you watch what's happening in america they are trying to kind of rewrite history to cater towards the idea that slavery wasn't that bad and, and stuff like that. And so it's changed the way I look at history. It's changed the way I look at the world today. There are certain stories that I'll never forget. Some are topical today. Some are, you know, in his moments in history, some are absurd, like how women couldn't wear pants some are just so relevant about like unions and uh, like Eugene Debs. Um, and then some of it just does go in one ear, out the other. People, I mean, when you do like 600 episodes, people will come up and they'll go, oh, that story about, even yesterday, someone was telling me about um, Boston Corbett. And I'm like, that name rings a bell. We've definitely done a dollop on him. And the guy goes, He's the guy who killed John Wilkes Booth, who's the guy who killed Abraham Lincoln. And he's like, but before he did that, he had like dirty thoughts, went home, read the Bible and cut his balls off because of that. And I'm going, I've heard this before and I don't remember the guy who killed the guy who killed Lincoln cut his balls off. I'm like, this show is insane. So so yes to all of it, really. It's like it's it's changed everything in almost every way for how I perceive things through the show you know would you would you take the dollop pill again <laughs> like was it were you happier <laughs> it's very that's a very uh that's a great way of putting it because it is very much like that it's like how much do you want to know do you want to walk i i some as you probably know with the climate show you know what's better full awareness that brings on dread and concern or to be one of the people at your show goes yeah i'm not really that worried about it which is better to enjoy the time before the shit hits the fan or to be prepared for when the shit hits the fan but that time in between is just every day you have two minds you go i gotta go to the post office and i gotta go buy the pay whatever and by the way we're running out of permafrost you know like what's better i would take it again because I think knowledge is power, uh, awareness is preparation, and, you know, 
I I would rather know than not know, but there are many times where I have envy over the people who think if you vote for one of our two parties, you're going to help fix things that easily. I think, uh, you know, I I mean, I would imagine it's it's got to be very similar to what you experience with doing that show yeah i I think um one of the most useful things i found out in about climate dread as i was kind of researching it and some other things about the climate is that it is completely normal and understandable to swing wildly between hope and despair and that's really i think that's really good to know because unless you know that you sometimes feel like hey i mean there were (laughs) there were times in the writing of the show where i would think to myself oh, this show's going to be irrelevant because actually we've got so many of, like, you know, like Greta Thunberg says, we've already solved climate change. You know, we we have so many of the te- technological solutions. Will we use them? And sometimes I'd feel so hopeful. I'd be like, this is, there's no future in doing comedy about the climate because it's all going to be okay. <laughs> and then like the next day I'll be like, what was I thinking? That's insane. We're screwed. And if you don't know that that is a completely normal, understandable reaction, like the the mad, the dizzying highs of, of optimism or techno optimism or you know that op- na- naive optimism even and then the mm-hmm. lows of thinking not only will we not fix it but who, what do we mean by we it's already killing people like it's already yeah. happening you know so yeah absolutely the, to, to spring between those things is is crazy so i'm interested yeah in, it's go yeah. On. no go ahead well i'm interested in how your how your kind of post dollop like leaving aside the performance and the kind of um, the, you know, the improv and what have you, we'll talk about those. But I'm interested in, in your kind of political position on stage, because obviously as a touring comic in the States, part of the deal is you have to, uh, and maybe not you have to, but a lot of people want to or need to be able to play in loads of different states. I was chatting mm-hmm. to a, a, an American comic called Leah Renee. Uh, over the just in the last few weeks up at the fringe she's a, a listener to the show and she was talking about living in i think philly where she mm-hmm. that sounds so that abbreviation sounds wrong coming out of my mouth but let's gloss over that um, <laughs> it's, it's your glasgow yeah yeah there we go <laughs> Philly. um um she was talking about how, oh, one of the great things about that city is that you can play in all sorts of different rooms. And I've certainly, mm-hmm. you know, d- different rooms politically and ethnically and all, all, all sorts of different environments. And I remember coming through, I remember kind of, not necessarily coming out of, but being in that state as a comic where you think to yourself, I want to be able to play every room. Like I've heard a lot of comics say that on my show and in, in life. Generally, you've got to be able to play every room. Not everyone thinks that. But I remember at one point that was an ambition. I want to be able to play every room. And now I think, oh, no, that sounds... I don't want to play every room. There'll be rooms full of people with whom I'm completely politically opposed. You know, I don't want to play every room. I don't want to be like a comedy lounge singer where I can please everyone a bit. And I'm just interested in... I think her saying that made me think of the the different landscape in America whereby, you know, red states and blue states and what have you. and, uh, And whether... I noticed at the end of the, the your recent YouTube special that you you sort of framed your politics as being like everyone is bad. And I'm not not dissim- not in a dissimilar way to how we've just been speaking about it now, you know. But but I don't think you were as kind of there's the you from the podcast and you in this conversation saying very clearly both of our parties are working against each other. Sorry, both of our parties are working effectively together against the people. I realise it's more complicated. complicated Yeah, yeah. But I did wonder whether it, it, 
you touring as a comic necessitates a softer approach than that in order to be able to get people on board who are there for a two drink minimum and a comedy night. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's a great question because it is, it's a, it's a very interesting paradox because the country is this country. I mean, I, I, I always think of the UK and Australia to some extent as on similar timelines as the US, just in kind of maybe the back to the future to, you know, Biff Casino timeline version. It's just like there's so many seeds that are have been planted in your in the UK and, and in Australia and other and other countries that here it's already come, like it's already come home to roost. And it is. It, it's the country is so divided, and yet most people share the belief that they don't want Joe Biden or Donald Trump to run. More people support the idea of those two not being in charge than support mm-hmm. those two independently. So if you were to do a, let's just say, a calculation as far as, which I didn't do, like you don't game plan your politics you know, like a politician. But if you were to say, well, what's the most winning strategy? That would probably be a version of kind of, you know, at the end of England, Weed and the rest, kind of what I do say a little bit, which is I don't like either one of these parties. I don't think one of our two parties is going to fix the enormous problems that we have. And almost being a full-on uh, homer for either one of them is kind of the problem. Now, I definitely think like what I, I – I definitely think when I do stand up, I view part of it as an escape. People aren't there to necessarily – you know, they're, they're, they're sick of the shit. They are yeah. tired of hearing about it. However – most people are really do not want do not adore either one of the parties they are what 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 the politicians promise now is that they're not the other yeah. there's no longer like we're going to give you health care we're going to do this for you it's just i'm not trump you know and that's enough to some extent or, or i'm not going to necessarily make abortion legal everywhere again but they're going to make it illegal mm-hmm. so it's kind of like a double negative in a weird way but um, it, it is difficult to navigate. I mean, I play all over the country. I mean, I, when I do my little one-nighter tours, it's like I'm going to be in Alabama and I'm going to be in New York City. So you definitely see people react differently to certain things. But I also think that it's kind of your job to be honest. And so, you know, when you have a platform, I think to some extent – to some extent, you you've got to play to your beliefs, and then you know if that is a problem, there's a dick joke around the corner, you know. <laughs> yeah. So 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 it is it is like it is definitely something you think about, but it's also I don't think it'll ever change what I say. You know, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but it is like it's a very it's the country is so strange. Because it is fully two camps who hate each other. So, you know, sometimes you are definitely dealing with with 
intense environments, you know? Yeah, um, it's a real it's a real luxury, I guess, over here that I mean, I doing the climate show, I've had walkouts for the first time. And I'm like the most inoffensive people pleasing kind of comic over here. Oh, so, oh, I, so yeah, the, the idea sure, that yeah. people have walked out and I've gone, oh, that's that could be yeah, once that could be coincidence. Oh, no, that's that's happening. You know, not not like malt, not loads of times, but enough to make me go, oh, people really disagree with what I'm saying. And I suppose it's... But, um, but don't you also think, I mean, in my head, I would say to that, okay, so that one person leaves. But if you do this effectively long enough in the right way, that one person leaving is going to be four or five people walking in. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a positive. In a long-term strategy. You know? Yeah, definitely. It didn't, it didn't affect me because at the moment, I guess, and that's another element of the... the the um, you know the, one of the most fundamental differences for a, a circuit comic in the UK, as you'll know, is that you can you don't need to be a headliner to get paid. You don't need to be the name yeah, outside right. outside the club yeah. to get paid. And there are no names outside the club, and we would hate that. <laughs> and a reminder: if you do do any clubs when you're in the UK, don't ever tell the MC to reel off your credits beforehand because your name will be mud. <laughs> I'll bring my own sign and I'll reel off my own credits. Got it. Yeah, but um. Uh, so yes, that's what, one of the ways in which I suppose that we are uh, spoiled in some ways is that yeah. there are very few. Now, I actually, I'm, I've got to check what I'm saying here because I guess there will be people who talk about their uh, gender or their sexuality or their ethnicity or what have you who might invite more aggressive, you know, uh, disagreement kind of reactions than I do with my climate stuff. Um, but I feel like. Uh, there isn't that sense. You are unlikely, I guess. I, I suppose what I'm trying to say in the UK, you are unlikely to get into a room where a fight could break out any minute over a political party. I think that's mm -hmm. right in saying. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's also it, what's interesting is my connection to the UK. While I have younger relatives, is through my mother. Uh, her sister, my uncles, and they're older and they really hold a much different set of values and version of the system than than younger audiences do. Um, I, how, I think it's so. Well, I know that when I mean, I even have a joke about it, like when I talk to my mother about the royal family, you know, we can't talk about it. Um, my mother loved the queen. My mother supports the royal family, and I feel like it's absurd. Um, I, you know, I feel like you are all, you know, again, in a version of the U.S. where, you know, when you look at Keir Starmer versus Sunak, like, yeah. you know, sure, there are these marginal differences, but yeah. they both are working on behalf of the big banks and the promises are basically, I'm not that, that one. Whereas my relatives would tell you like my uncle is obsessed with Donald Trump obsessed. Every time I talk to him, he'll, he'll, he'll just be like, well, it looks like Trump's finally going down. And I'll be like, yeah, but that's like been the last six years has been like, Trump's finally going down. Yeah. And you know, so I think they, you know, I mean, they're part of a generation that was able to buy a house for 30,000 pounds and you could get any job anytime you walked out the door and and all that. And I so I think they think like, oh, the system works better. But it definitely seems like there is a version now where, um, yeah, I mean, people in the UK are fucking almost just as pissed off as us, but maybe just lagging behind a little bit to the level of 
division and fury that this country experiences. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think uh, I, I don't think that's wrong. I think um, it is interesting seeing the uh, <laughs> that kind of back to the future analogy of seeing Australia, about which I know less politically. Um, I've got a, I've got an overview, you know, but but like seeing uh, <laughs> certainly the UK and the US as alternate futures based on whether yeah. or not you whether or not you behead. I would say we're the Biff one. <laughs> I mean, we're we're definitely like the Biff one, where you're like, holy fuck, Biff's in charge. Yeah, um, I mean, was Biff was Biff based on Trump in that one? I don't think so. No, I, okay. I mean, you know what? He might he might have been. I I don't know. Either way, it's either insanely prescient or it's genius. Yeah. I mean, because it is fully it, we the, we are the Biff Casino, the country right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- you've just given me a, a really horrifying thought there, which is the extent to which, when we look at kind of apocalyptic versions of a possible future, climate or otherwise, AI, whatever, you know, you can sort of. I, th- I suppose in the back of my mind, I sort of think. Yeah, yeah, but those are just, you know, when you see like well-realized Hollywood ones, you go, yeah, but those are just movies. It won't be like that. And then you look at the Biff Casino and you're like, oh, no, maybe it could be like that. Maybe it could be exactly like The Road or whatever it is, you know. Well, we're we're in like, we're in a timeline right now where it's like, you know, when I was a kid, you'd watch a movie and they'd, you know, to bring you up to speed of like the zombie apocalypse or whatever, it would be these headlines that were just like horrendous, like... Those are now the headlines you're like reading on Twitter. You're like, holy shit, that's fucking dark as hell. You know, like we're in the montage headline phase that makes you go like, (laughs) sweet mother of God. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about um, about your well, we what we haven't done is talk about your origins. So tell me, how did you come to be uh, an American with an English family and what what drove you to stand up in the first place? Well, the first part was out of my hands. My my parents, um, you know, uh, my mother had a son, a young child, met my father. They got married. Uh, when my brother was seven, they moved to the States because my father got a job offer. Um, when my brother was 12, uh, so they'd been in the country for about five years, they moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and then I was born there. So I was you know, really raised by a traditional English couple in like one of the most kind of America parts of America. And so I was kind of an incubated English child for like the first five years of my life. I had an accent, you know, I I knew nothing of the outside world. And then I kind of went to out in the world of Wisconsin and started um, becoming more of an American. But so... I really did have this kind of cocktailed version of culture where it was my mother didn't even know what America was when I was being raised. She hadn't figured it out. So, so you know, looking back, it was very strange. It was a very sort of interesting childhood, and I don't think I really knew how interesting it was um, until I got a little bit older. And re- You know, I, I always remember watching... Americans react, uh, people in Wisconsin especially, react to my mother. Like, they heard an English person, and they were just like, lady, where the hell are you from? Like, they were so like, (laughs) whoa. And I remember her genuinely getting asked if, like, she knew people, like, that England was 
you know, like a suburb. They'd be like, my friend uh, Linda moved to Eng- moved to London, I think. She's got like red hair, you know, and my mother'd be like, oh, I think I know Linda. Yes, my, I might know her. <laughs> um, so it was very, it was very culturally bizarre. And, I, you know, I think what kind of pushed me, you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I was always a bit of like a clown. And I, I saw my father be very funny. Um, and then my parents' marriage was really, really rocky and like really fucked up. And so, and you know, nothing like what some people go through. But it was, it was definitely uh, a... a not a good marriage and a strange example to be around. And I think so it kind of, I was looking for an escape and attention and that combined with kind of being, you know, quickly witted to some extent led me to improv. And when I found improv at probably, you know, 14 years old, um, there was just a click. I was like, Oh, this is, what I've been looking for. Like I've been looking for, you know, trying to make people laugh in a professional environment, you know, to some extent. And that was really where performing kind of clicked. And I, I, you know, I'd done plays and stuff like that and I really enjoyed doing that, but it wasn't until I started doing improv where I was like, Oh, this is, this is it. I mean, this is like this version of performing where, you know, no, it's not someone else's lines. It's either things you've made up or eventually, you know, the things you've kind of written for yourself. That really was when I knew what I wanted to do, you know, fully when I was like a teenager. Do you do you have any like I'm often um, I often uh, take a, an interview subject, let's say guest. That sounds less weird. Sure. And uh, and try yeah, it's like less laboratorious. <laughs> um, and I kind of I'm, I often try to kind of go, what's that? What's that about? Is that connected to that? Is that the reason for that? It might be simpler. It occurs to me now just to ask, do you have any pet theories as to why you are the kind of performer you are or why you are the sort of. Uh, you know art, why you are the sort of artist you are, whether it, that be in performance or in any other way. Do you do have you ever kind of joined the dots and gone, oh, I guess it was that, and it must be this, and a bit of that? Well, it's hard because you know with improv, I, I don't know how much you could teach rules of improv, but it still is it is your brain's processing. I mean, I I don't know how much of that. Um, can really be like, I'm not trying to even make it sound like, I just don't know how much of that necessarily can be taught. So, so I think for myself, um, you know, realizing that with my standup, eventually taking all that improv experience you know, which which at first was just like when I was a teenager was like doing improv games, like Who's Line style to some extent. And then going to the version where it's like, oh, no, you're going out there with a team of people and you're just kind of creating a whole world on your own and that sort of stuff. And then kind of having that not only, you know, when I started to do stand up, I didn't do any improv. It was all stand up. And then as as I kind of went through it more and more going, oh, no, like not only you know, being able to do crowd work or riff on stage or whatever, but also, 
you know, how I would write stuff, write so much stuff on stage with a premise. Um, but I don't know. I don't necessarily know why it kind of formed into this version of it. I, I definitely think that my parents being kind of wrapped up in their own drama filled me with a compulsion to get attention. And I think that that sort of the version of attention became, you know, laughter. And that was, that was filling me with, with something, you know, when I really needed it. I mean, when I really think back to being 14 years old, that was when shit was really difficult with, with what I was kind of around as a, as a teenager and, and you're a teenager. So everything's already fucked up. Um, but I, around that time found this place called comedy sports in Milwaukee. That was like, you know, just the combination of moments to get me there. And then to be like, Oh, I have found a clubhouse and I have found the people that I want to be like my heroes who were, you know, who would later tell me you don't want to be me. I'm, I'm just like a guy <laughs> in Milwaukee doing improv, you know, but I'm going, these are my fucking heroes. Um, so I, th- I think that really was, you know, that is kind of like the minor path that was charted, but, but I still, I don't know. I don't know how you, you know, I think it's so strange with the version, again, the version of comedy that I've sort of fallen into with the podcast is, Hey, go make everything up. And um, it's very strange. You know, it wasn't really when I moved to Los Angeles, that was not a lane. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 I suppose um, in terms of that, in terms of the the need for attention for the 14 year old for whom and not just attention, but kind of positive attention. And I guess almost maybe some sort of emotional consistency that a laugh gives you. Like if you're making your folks laugh then it's love yeah yeah exactly you know a laugh is love i mean a laugh a laugh feels like it's like when you pet a dog you're like i did good you know (laughs) is there is there like some i think i guess with some comics i'm sure we could we could both think of examples of this that's a kind of a need and it doesn't feel like a healthy need does it (laughs) does it feel healthy for you it does yeah a laugh is love sounds quite healthy yeah, I, I I definitely I think it is. I mean, I'm biased, um, but I think it is. I think it it's you know. I think I never th- I don't think of getting a laugh as just for me. I definitely like to make people laugh for them as well, and I, that might sound a little, uh, you know, kind of like. <laughs> almost hoity-toity, but I I definitely, I like making people enjoy themselves. I enjoy that. My positive experience is not, I'm not just, I don't think of it as just like I'm a parasite. It's like symbiosis. I'm like, you're happy, I'm happy. And that may be, even saying it, is a bit desperate, but... I do definitely feel like I have the healthy version of that. I I view performing as a professional career, but one that is so it doesn't matter how fucking tired you are, how whatever, when you get out on stage, I'm like, let's go. I still feel that. Like I don't feel like nervous, 
but I definitely, when you get out there, you're like, let's go, let's figure this out. And, um, you know, so I do, I mean, I think a laugh is a laugh is a version of someone being like, you know, it's like, it's like, I mean, it's like a healthier version of social media. You know, you get a like and you're like, they like me. They like, they like me. That's not, you know, a laugh is a fucking like, I mean, it's, it's the old version of a like. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it does it makes you feel good i mean you you know when you're when you just talk about that state for a little bit that bit of like when you get up there no matter what mood you're in let's fucking go because something so we'll talk a little bit about gariffs which i guess was a um uh, a pandemic endeavor you certainly <laughs> seem to have some pretty big hair <laughs> it was wild i wasn't getting haircuts then um <laughs> Well, yeah, essentially, you know, I mean, I I had, like a lot of people, I had like 2020 mapped out for like six months. For the first year ever, I was like, oh, I have shows. I'm going to be insanely busy. And then I canceled everything. And um, and then I was living in a, a one-bedroom apartment in Studio City. And um, I just didn't want to live there anymore. And so I basically rented a house in Boise, Idaho, for cheaper than what I was paying in my rent in Studio City. And so I lived in the middle of nowhere, basically alone. I had, like, a friend of mine, you know, she kind of lived there part, part-time. and um, but, but essentially, and then I wasn't performing. And, um, and it, I didn't like it. And so I was like, okay, well, every Thursday at whatever, 6, I'm going to do... Uh, a, a show fully improvised from my living room and I'll make it look as professional as possible. I'll have a microphone and, and uh, uh, people in the crowd can, or people in the virtual crowd can send suggestions to an email and I won't look at it. And then live on the stream, I'll see the suggestion for the first time and I'll just riff on it, you know? Um, and it really that I, so I just did that every Thursday for about an hour, an hour and a half. I would just stand there and just see suggestions and just riff on them. And it's so stupid in its conception and even execution. <laughs> but I took it very seriously. And and I would be like, that wasn't a good one. Or I'd be like, I was on fire tonight, you know, like, which now I'm just like, you're an idiot. Um, but uh, but that was really what it was birthed out of. It was kind of birthed out of this this whole of no more performing. And yeah. so I and, and and people, you know, a lot of people. A lot of people like Garrett's losing his mind. Like you said, like I had a huge beard. I like my hair was crazy and I was going insane talking into a camera like it was an audience. But then some people are like, oh, that really like helped me. That was like a thing Mm. I could watch every week or or whatever. So so it was just kind of birthed out of the madness of that year. It's it's a funny one because I think over the last 18 months or so, it's kind of a bit eggy to talk about the pandemic. We don't want to be reminded of it, all that kind of stuff. I hope now that we're far enough away from it that it's it's really fascinating to see what people did. Like some people when I'm out, I'm going to drive a van. We've got kids to feed, what have you, you know. And I, I think any any there's no uh, solution to the problems of the pandemic for a, for a full-time comic that I would look down on at all. You know, people did all, all sorts of things. But I think it's really interesting to go, you can look back and go, what did that person prioritise? You know, artistically, creatively, what what would what seemed the most obvious thing for that person to spend their time doing? Yeah, right. I've got friends who are like they were a cartoonist as well, and then they got into doing a cartooning stand-up or show. They started a podcast, or, or they started yeah, a podcast, yeah. or I did some online multi-interactive kind of invention show thing. Um, 
but yours in particular, I, I honestly, I would recommend any new comic or any comic watch a few of those Gariffs because I only, I only saw them recently when I was researching you for this. I didn't know, know about them at the time. But there is something, and I said, I'll use the word again, there is something heroic about watching a man with no audience commit, may I say, fully to the premise oh, yeah. of I'm going to read a thing for the first time and I'm going to make myself riff on it to yeah. no one. Well, not to no one, but to no one in the room. And that yeah. is heroic. That is like the nobility is extraordinary because you can see <laughs> the, the kind of, and I mean this in a very positive and um, affectionate <laughs> way. Go, go ahead. <laughs> you can see the hunted look in your eye as you're like, okay, here goes. Here's what the thing is. I'm going to do the thing. And then you do. And to watch someone, not I'm not going to say scrabbling about, but that process of kind of, what, what could we do? Okay, let's, I think there was, I think part of the format was that you said, okay, I'll read two and then I'll pick one of them. So you had a little kind of leeway, or I don't know if that was just one, one particular episode I saw. It, it looked like there was a format thing. You would go, it's this or it's this. Okay, let's go with that. And you can see your mind kind of ferreting around going, what about, I go, mate, that's interesting. And then, and then you could like to see you when you get it, I go like, oh, here's, or not get it, but when you, you, you get a thread yeah. that you can get some mileage out of, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. Like I felt a bit, when I was watching it, I was like in the early moments of each one, I'd be like, oh God, I'm really invested in this. I feel like I'm sat in the front row of a gig and there's no one there but me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this could yeah. go badly, but you really committed to it. And it is, it is genuinely, it was educational to watch you commit to getting something out of the riff, knowing that you couldn't just rely on material, switch back to crowd work or any other, other of, of those lifelines that we all have in front of an audience. Well, I think that is truly like the perfect encapsulation because I, for the most part, it would just be one thing. I would see I had my friend pick, you know, kind of call them and then he would sort of put together, I don't know, 15 of them. And so I just knew there was going to be about 15 and I would be scrolling through it and it would just be one thing. Sometimes I'd be like, I got nothing. But yeah, it really was. I mean, it was, you know, looking back, it is madness because, you know, it was, it was that. It was, I, I related it and sometimes like when I do like fully crowd work shows, which, which was kind of birthed out of that, yeah. you know, the ability to be like, oh, I can just kind of riff like endlessly. But I've kind of uh, equated it to like a rock climber where you're just looking for the next, thing to put your fingers or your foot in to get a little bit higher up because a lot of it would be the suggestion would be one thing and I would not have anything and to what you're saying you can probably see that in my head there is nothing but I need to talk because that was the format of what I would created so I would start talking and start thinking about it out loud and that could sometimes breadcrumb me towards a location of an idea that then I actually did enjoy, and then I could just talk about it for a while. Sometimes there'd be ones where I'd get it right away. Sometimes there'd be ones where, like I said, I'd go, I would have nothing, and I would move on. But sometimes I would just talk through something and land on something. And, I mean, this was for an hour to an hour and a half every week. And, yeah, it's nuts. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, I did it. I don't know how long I did it for, but probably close to a year so, you know, close to 52 times, 
I just live streamed just that. Like it was just, it's almost, I'm sure some people were whacking off to it like a weird fetish. I mean, it is like there, I was on the struggle bus for times, but it did throw me into the deep end of what is, let's make your brain do gymnastics, whether you've stretched or not, let's go. And, um, it is, I mean, it's, it is fully no net chatting, performing, improvising, improvising stand-up. And it really was, it was just super weird, but I did find it so helpful. I felt like I came out of that year and the first time I did a show, not only to have a live reaction, I mean, which I had not had in me talking (laughs) into a microphone for a year, but also to be like, I'm ready to talk. (laughs) Like, you know, I, you know, it can't get worse than that. So I'm, you know, I feel comfort now in maybe the moments of, I don't know what's next. I feel, I feel okay with it. How do you cope when it, when it goes wrong? How do you, how do you cope with a bad gig or a shitty crowd or a, a new bit you're excited about the bombs or whatever? Uh, well, I think off stage i mean it just happens you know i i think as you get better and better at it your basement for what is terrible you know for what what's terrible to you like what when i think bad show i don't think the audience goes that was vile or that was <laughs> horrendous i want my money back but i know i could do more i Relate it sometimes like an old man who likes sports to athletes. Some games you just don't have it. The next game you're probably going to score a shitload because you've been thinking about it and you just want to get that taste out of your mouth. In the moment on stage when a thing doesn't work, when a thing bombs, when a, a joke that kills normally doesn't, I think you just get better and better at, at, you know, again, recognizing you're kind of the conductor of the emotional state of the room and ignoring something that bombs is weird. Yeah. You know, I call, you know, I'll say, well, that joke worked better yesterday. Or I'll go, all right, so you guys don't like lizard stuff. Got it. You know, whatever it is. Sure, yeah. I I can kind of talk, I can kind of normally get a laugh out of not getting a laugh. Um and, you know, finding that. And also, you know, if you're having one of those nights sometimes where it's just, it ain't happening, I, that's when I'll dip into the crowd and I'll just start talking to the crowd and just start trying to mine something where people know, oh, this is being created fully in the moment. Mm-hmm. That sometimes is a good change up, you know. Do you, do you have, because I, I noticed one of the, um, you, you sort of, a, a thing I've noticed you do in, uh, in that, in that, um, uh, in the special and in some other clips as well, it's like um, a, a, like switching to immediately act out the offer. Like if there is an offer, like mm-hmm. with crowd work, you know. So the idea comes in and you'll kind of try it on for size. You'll kind of try it on by acting it out. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And the, And you sort of, it's really interesting how you can use that to switch between the kind of silliness that you, that's really giddy, that kind of conductor thing. And also, because if you're a conductor, you also need authority and pace and rigidity. So I think switching between those, I don't know what the question is. You, you, you switch between those things in a very kind of deft way. Well, I think, I think, you know, it's, 
again, I mean, you're sort of, yeah, you are. I mean, you're really trying on the premise, but I also think, you know, one of the things that can happen sometimes when you're including the audience in the show is that sometimes someone can try to take over the, what you're trying to deliver. And so I think, yeah, I think you definitely are, it's important. I, I know when I used to watch standups, I would be like, oh, they're being like mean to that person, you know, but there are times where you just need to have authority. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, there are a lot, I mean, again, it, it, it not to bring everything back to that fucking year where I was in Idaho, just talking into a camera, <laughs> but there are times where I'm going, they've given me the gift. Now let me see if I can, you know, deliver upon it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think there is like there is that it it is. It's important to kind of make that feel a bit seamless, I guess, which yeah. I try to do, you know. So before we wrap up, I just want to talk about your because I'm something I'm really interested in. It's something this sort of podcast really is secretly about. It's not about kind of technique of jokes. It's about how do you cope? Like how do you, do you know what I mean? How do you cope yeah. with your creative life and how do you cope with like what were you what were you looking for in the first place? Did you get it? Do you think you'll continue to get it forever? Will it be enough for you forever to make them laugh, conduct them? They pat you on the head, they love you. Like is that do you have any thoughts about the kind of the long term nature of that? Like will you always not not to suggest that you're needy or that you need that, but it, the extent to which you need that, will you always need that? You know, it's addictive. Uh, as I'm sure you know, I mean, that it's one of those things where, I mean, think about the madness of pursuing this. It, it is, at first, getting kicked in the dick in front of strangers over and over and over again. And then once you go on the other side and you start to actually be competent, some would say good, um, it, is, it is a need. Um, I think that I, I, I think I could do without it, but when I say that, I also spent a year riffing alone in a room because it was, I'm addicted to it. it. I mean, that is as good an experiment as any to find out whether you could do without it. And the results of that experiment are in. (laughs) (laughs) And when, and when you, when you are on the road, you can't wait to go home. And then when you have a little bit of time at home, you just start going, I really can't wait to get back out there again and, and start. You never want to leave it. It's such a it's such a competitive world and endeavor that I think it's a healthy competition, but it's still a competition, even if it's with yourself. Yeah. Um, I I do think that, like, you know, I don't want to work this hard forever, but I think that at some point if I tried to like walk away, I don't think I could. I mean, you see it all the time. I mean, you see it with athletes. I'm done. I'm good. They can't. You see it with bands. I mean, how many farewell tours has Elton John done? You know, like you you see it. I, I just think it's once you get there and I know comedians who have gone more and be in more of the writing direction or things like that. And they fucking miss it. And I know people who have been successful as writers. They've made money as writers. They were comedians. They'll get back out there and they'll start bombing again because it, it is, it's just 
for if you're like us, it is the best. It's just it could be a room of twenty people, but if it's working, it's the best. It could be fifteen hundred people, it's the best. Um so I, I don't know. I don't think there is a version where I just ever am able to be like, I'm done. But I also think I'm I'm lucky or you know, maybe because I started stand up later. I realized what I didn't want to become. And I yeah. think I've tried to, to live my life by being like, I, it is, it's a great job, but it is a job. It's professional. It's not what I, you know, I, when I'm not, when I'm at home or I'm talking to my friends, it's not like, I'm like, I did a show once where, but you know, it's just like, it's a job, you know? It's so funny. I'm thinking because you seem to have pretty robust mental health. One of the great uh, founding principles of this podcast is the search for robust mental health. Is that, is that fair? Do you think you have? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I think it's, it's kind of been a battle at times for sure. Um, but yeah, I think to be healthy, grounded and, and thankful, um, is really important to, to get lost in the ego of this stuff is really easy. And I think through hallucinogenics and, uh, and just, you know, realizing what you don't want to become and what can be bad. Yeah, I think I, I do have, I well, think I'm lucky in that. As well as well as the uh, hallucinogenics, I would also suggest you have sort of the triumvirate of of coping with comedy, which is A, improv. All of the improv mm-hmm. people I speak to are happy, <laughs> one way or yeah. another. They're basically yes, happy. They, they, don't yeah. Have, yeah, they don't have the kind of gnawing, craving, me against the world, got to chip the jokes out, you know, chip the chip away at the granite, work down the joke mine for the rest of my life. They don't have the kind of, yeah. that kind of hunted feel. The, I, you've made numerous, I'm not a sport person at all. Um, I believe that's what you call them, sport persons. Um, yes, and, but, you're but, very you're you're right on it. <laughs> but you're like so many of your analogies are to do with athleticism and sports and that idea of you know try again and you need it next time and, and competition. But as you say, healthy competition. Like I'm fairly sure the phrase "healthy competition" has never been said on this podcast because people talk oh, yeah. about competitors a competition but the idea of seeing that as an inherently healthy process i think is really good and then the other one in the triumvirate i was going to suggest um as well as kind of you know skill and talent some of the things we talked about is presumably the dollop is remunerating you to a, a satisfying extent whereby gigging well, that's is a, it like a choice that, rather than a, a desperate necessity well i i think you know one of the things is There is that when you have comfort of, I mean, again, like, you know, not to get too into it, but you definitely um, take care of, there's certainly people you have to take care of once you get some success. And, and I think that that's what you want to do. I mean, you want to be like able to provide for people and stuff like that. So that is definitely a driver to some extent of uh, maybe the level of uh, work ethic that I have, but yes, you definitely it it i mean i've been in all versions of it and yeah that's why the expression i wish it wasn't this way but when people say money doesn't buy you happiness i think that's true but i think not having it does buy you sadness yeah and, <laughs> yeah that's it uh, I, i'm sure and, there is some data on like a certain amount you need it it doesn't buy you happiness after a certain amount but you do yeah. need that certain amount i remember chatting to dave backstage at, at south by when it, he was at a stage, we'd, we'd, met, we'd seen each other at, at the, uh, the LA Podfest many years ago. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, when yeah. I saw Dave, I mean, years ago still, but a little after that, 
he just sort of seemed to be coming to terms with he was very much in that kind of whoa this is this is blown up like things things are different now <laughs> he just seemed to be right in the middle of that thing of, of i suppose that part when you do have something which is so successful online that you own that you're not you're you're not on a tv show hoping it doesn't get cancelled you're not writing a tv show hoping they renew it you know but you own the 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 product itself and he seemed to be really in that mode of like oh not only is things working out but there's no reason why they can't continue working out it's i mean you know it is a relief i mean it it's it is a very difficult business and when you are really going through the ringer with it it is really hard i mean i i've had a number of really low moments and i remember one of them being when i was broke had no prospects had been working at it for a while had had a couple blips and I needed, I had to borrow money from my brother and I was at his place and things were bad. And he did not say this in a way that was like trying to sandbag me, but he just looked at me and he said, what's your plan? And I just was like, man, I don't fucking know. And it isn't all is lost. And so when you go from that to being like, okay, now not only do I have a plan, but it like has footing and it's, it is, it's, it's impossible to say that that doesn't play into being um you know giving your mind some sort of health relief uh maybe is an even better way to put it um but that's a part of it and then the the healthy competition stuff is like it's a battle i mean when you engage in this career you're gonna go on social media for your career which you have to do and you're gonna see people who are doing better than you all the fucking time. All the time. And that can drive you fucking crazy. But you also have to remember there are people who are, look at you as that person too. And there are people who you look at as those people who look at other people and think it'll never end. It, I, I, a very successful comedian I know when I met up with him and said something about their success said to me right away, yeah, there's a lot of haters, though. And I thought, well, fucking, but you're huge. You're enormous. So who gives a fuck about them? But it'll, that'll never end. So coming to terms with that is also, also a part of it. So it's a, it's a battle, but I think it is like you, just like anything, you're not defined by your relationship. You're not defined by your career. You're not defined by any of that stuff. You're kind of just defined by who you are, and that is... Um, you know, that's really what it's all about. I mean, especially when you do what we do and you're, you know, you are, (laughs) you're giving merriment. (laughs) I mean, that's such a luxurious job. Um, you know, that it's like, take it seriously, but Jesus Christ, don't, you know, don't overthink it or overstress it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.